could you tell us a bit about your experience in the real world seeing patients with giant cell arteritis? Yeah, for sure. I've had the privilege with the service we've created with doing a lot of the ultrasound assessments. I get to see a lot of patients from my colleagues. There's how cases are described in textbooks, and then there's all the nuances and varied ways that they present that isn't really captured. And maybe not one clinician alone will have a chance to see that whole spectrum. But I can say that over the last two years, I've seen over 200 cases of GCA, and there's a lot of like variety in that. Some of them are my own patients, some of them are patients from other colleagues, as I said. So this is described in some literature as well, but I think presentation of a chronic dry cough, and again, such a non-specific symptom, right? Like, is it a lung infection? Is it something going on in the pleura, in the lining of the lung? Or is there some sort of cancer that leads people down those thoughts? And what PET scans have shown us is that sometimes the pharyngeal artery or the arteries in the lung, like the bronchial tree, they actually become inflamed and that irritates the lung and sometimes the lining of the lung and that triggers a cough, right? Just a persistent dry cough. I can say I probably have over a dozen patients now that I've seen, like you treat their GCA and their cough goes away. And some of the patients, they've noticed it. They're like, was that cough related? You know, and I don't think most general physicians would know that. I think that's more within rheumatology and within vasculitis. But that's an atypical manifestation. I've definitely seen that. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Skin and Joints podcast, a national multidisciplinary conversation on everything skin and joints. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest co-host, I heard that she's joining us straight in the studio from a long shift in the ICU post-call. Is that true, Ashley? No, I, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's partly true. I did have a long ICU shift, but that was two days ago. Now. Okay, okay. Yeah. well, thanks for being here, Ashley, and tell us about yourself. Yeah, uh, thanks for the introduction. My name is Ashley Yip. I'm an internal medicine resident at the University of British Columbia, and I'll be doing my rheumatology fellowship at the University of Alberta. That's exciting. So you're, you're trading the sunny skies of Vancouver for the cold weather of Edmonton. Is that where you're from? Yeah, <laughs> that's like a classic question I get. People are like, <laughs> oh, you're going to Edmonton. You must have family there. But no, I'm from Kelowna. From Kelowna. Okay. Yeah. So kind of cold. You mentioned that you've had a certain interest in vasculitis. Yeah. Um, so I'm very excited to chat with our other guest today because I've known him for quite a while and he's played a big part in me going into rheumatology and okay. we've done research together on ultrasound and GCA. So very applicable to this podcast. Okay. Well, that's a good segue to our guest today, i.e. the good doctor, Dr. Mo Barty. Welcome. Say that to you because we work together. Dr. Barty has completed his training in internal medicine and rheumatology at UBC including a fellowship in MSK ultrasound through the American College of Rheumatology, also known as the U.S. Sonar Program. Now, that sounds like a program straight from the U.S. military. You know, the medicine in the U.S. has like military overlap. So, okay. yeah, I okay. agree. Fair enough. Yeah. And further, you've trained in the use of ultrasound for assessing large vessel vasculitis, which we'll be having a conversation about. Dr. Barty is a clinical instructor at UBC and a staff rheumatologist at VGH. As well, he's part of the vasculitis clinic at the Mary Pack Arthritis Center. I want to ask you, Dr. Barty, tell us a little bit about the downtown Eastside Rheumatology Clinic. It sounds like a really novel practice environment. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. This was an initiative that our division had, Dr. Shajanya, had started to think about for a while because there's an unmet need. We sometimes see very complex patients that come into the hospital at St. Paul's VGH 
they have very challenging diagnoses and then they fall through the cracks in terms of follow-up because in a conventional setting, you know, in our private practices, there may not be adequate follow-up. So mm-hmm. it was a partnership initiated through the Mary Pack Arthritis Program, through uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, to try to bring services to the downtown east side. At, and this is, we run our clinic through the Pender Clinic, mm-hmm. which is a common, it's an access point for a lot of residents in downtown east side and even patients with like substance use disorders. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Brent Ohada and I, we run that clinic together. We're each there. We provide service mm-hmm. twice a month. And we receive referrals from a lot of the physicians there. And it's really nice because a lot of these patients, they have a lot of complex medical needs. And sometimes, even if we're not able to directly assess the patients, because there's a high rate of no-shows, right, we're able to at least provide some guidance for the referring physician or give some guidance as to, hey, when you do see this person come in, this is what they should do next. And sometimes when we're in the when the clinic there, someone who we're not even scheduled to see, but if they come in, their their family doctor who's there or their their primary care provider, if they see that we're in the office, like, hey, this person never comes in, they're finally here. Can you step out and can we talk about their case or can you come see them with me? And I think that kind of availability is, is so far we've been doing this for over, we're close to a year now mm-hmm. and it's been well received. I think we're providing care for patients and we plan to continue running the clinic. That sounds really innovative and I think really focusing on reducing barriers for patients who have already a tough time accessing any healthcare service, especially in that area and, and some of the patients with very complex comorbidity as well. So that's great to hear. It's, yeah. uh, it sounds really cool. Thank you. I'll pass the buck over to Ashley. So I think this episode, I really don't need to do much because Ashley's kind of the expert. So I'm just going to sit back here and relax. Thanks. So do you mind, it, Dr. Barty, do you mind if we call you Mo going forward through the podcast? Please do. Okay. Yes. First question. It's going to be really difficult. So I'm really sorry to put you on the spot. Starbucks or Tim Hortons? You know, both. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you why. When I did part of my training, I was in the Northern Medical Program at uh, UNBC. And I became, I, I, Tim Hortons really grew on me. There's just something about their chicory taste in their coffee. I don't know what it is, it, it, but it kind of grew on me. So it depends what's nearby, actually. Yeah. Near the clinic, there's a Starbucks, so I get a Starbucks every day. And I find in, in Vancouver, a lot of Starbucks are actually closing down. I don't know if you noticed that. Yes. But it sucks. It's very sad. We should say we're not sponsored. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> no. Yes, yes. But if Starbucks would like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out. <laughs> We'd be happy to. Now, Mo's very diplomatic. I noticed that he didn't choose one. He's keeping his options open. Yeah. Um, so, Mo, I'd like to get to know you a little bit more um, so our audience can figure out the person who is also the GCA expert. Tell us something about yourself that no one knows. Or most people don't know. I guess most people don't know. I, I've had a huge passion and love for comic books and superheroes growing up. I mean, like some people have like comic book collections. I had those. Some people have like figurine collections. I have those. I still have actually saved these. But I even have like collector card like over years, like like 1990. <laughs> it feels so far away. But when I was a kid, I, I collected these years and years. And I've actually kept all these things. Like this is before comic books and Marvel was as mainstream as it is now. So maybe they've gone up in value. But I, I kept these things because I really enjoyed geeking out on these characters. And I, I think it's really cool that Marvel heroes and superheroes have such a bigger limelight in pop culture now. That's cool. I, I used to collect the WWE figurines. still have them. <laughs> 
somewhere in a garage somewhere, but they had collector cards too. Oh, they did? They, <laughs> I, I, I did not know. That. I have to ask now. So what superpower would you have? You know what? I thought about this so much as a kid and I was like, I wanted my superpower to be that I could, whatever I imagined would become real. And this was actually explored in comic books. Franklin Richards, if anyone's out there as a fan, they'll, I'll just drop that hint. But basically, it, it's also a scary superpower to have because if you have a bad thought about something, what if that became real? Anyway. Mm. Mm. That's like the plot of one. Yeah. Sorry to <laughs> yes. spoil it. Oh, you said no. <laughs> Come on, Ashley. Oh, I'm sorry. You can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Going along those lines. So, you know, we like to understand who's behind the white coat. Tell us about your childhood. And this is not a psychology podcast by any means, but what experiences do you think led you to becoming a rheumatologist? Why rheumatology? And looking yeah. back now. Yeah, you know, I think growing up, I was always really curious about understanding how things work. It's one of the things that I think I've heard from my family so much. And this almost came to the detriment of any toy that was given to me as a child because I would take things apart, like when I was two, three, four, five. Like, and whenever my mom or my dad saw like a broken toy, they'd recently give me like, "What were you doing?" I'm like, "I'm just trying to figure out how it works." And I would take stuff apart. And I have two uncles who are mechanics, and whenever they'd work on a car, like I'd love to just be beside them and see how things work. And I always thought I was going to go into some form of engineering, like mechanical or electrical engineering. And my high school had a really great electronics program, and I did that. Like I was doing grade. 12 electronics in grade 10 because I just thought it was so interesting, right? And we got to make cool things and understanding the physics behind it. And then and I was kind of gearing myself up for that. And then grade 12 biology really changed my perspective on a lot of things because it made me go, oh, like this is something nobody understands, like really, really understands. And being somewhat like pragmatic, I thought, okay, like there's biology and there's mechanics. And so I studied kinesiology in my undergrad because I thought like biomechanics was it was kind of cool to think about that, like expand a bit more on it. And, and as I went through all that, I thought I'd go into rehab or I'd go into physiotherapy, but I still wanted something like more challenging or something that I just felt like didn't have a ceiling that I could see in terms of how much there is to understand about it. And that ultimately led me to medicine. I didn't go into undergrad thinking I'd go into medicine. I actually told all my friends who were doing medicine, I was like, you guys are crazy. Who wants to do that much school, right? And And I ate those words, but Eventually, uh, even as I went through medicine, I, I think what really drew me into rheumatology was you don't own an organ. Like, it's not the heart. It's not the lungs. It's it's really a whole person. And I think that as much as there's a scientific drive and hunger and curiosity, there's also an aspect of trying to understand that we're there to look after people. We're there to provide care. Um, we're there to try to make sense of a lot of complexities that so someone can walk away with a tangible understanding of, like, why did this happen? Why am I here? What can we do next? And I think that, you know, rheumatology really lended itself to that. And it, it, it has so much that we're understanding, but there's still so much that we don't understand. And I was really lucky with certain mentors that I had exposure to along the way who just really showed me that you can be a very curious, scientific-driven physician, but also have lots of empathy and care for patients. And rheumatology just really fostered that place. And this is my shout out to Dr. Shajania. <laughs> who was just such a phenomenal mentor. There's lots of people, but he was really fantastic. So, you know, that's that's my summary. <laughs> that question was taken from a med school MMI pool of questions, and Mo really nailed it. He hit it out of the park. No, no, that was excellent. I didn't really think of the role that you know would play in terms of the mechanics and being interested in parts. Like you say, 
from a young age and, and making that link to where you are now. And you're also the holistic aspect of, of rheumatology. Absolutely. Tell us a little about your current practice in, in Vancouver. You touched on the downtown east side. Mm-hmm. You have a, a really, really cool ultrasound setup in clinic. Tell us about that. And also COVID. How's that changed things for yourself in clinic, how you see patients and generally for the rheumatology community? Yeah. You know, it's it's been interesting. I, I feel like now that I've been into practice there wasn't any one particular person who kind of role modeled the practice I currently have. I feel like I've taken bits and pieces from different people and, and I'm still figuring it out. It's always iterative in medicine. But knowing myself, I like diversity. I, I can't do the same thing every day. I, and so, some people like repet, like a lot of similarity. I don't thrive with that. I thrive under variety. And so my practice is quite varied. There are patients I see just like any other rheumatologist, like people with suspected inflammatory arthritis or do they have lupus you know like connective tissue diseases or this person has elbow pain can you help us figure out what's going on so there's a lot there's definitely like just general rheumatology or this person's lab work came back really abnormal they have these autoimmune markers what do you think right so i see general rheumatology cases i think where my practice has deviated a bit because of my work in ultrasound and msk ultrasound like i do get a lot of referrals for hip pain or shoulder pain, which sometimes those would go to physical medicine, rehabilitation, physiatry, or sports med or orthopedics. But one thing I add in my assessment, similar to like a doctor having a stethoscope, when you're there in their office, they want to listen to your heart, listen to your lungs. I use an ultrasound to look at the joints as well, right? And it's an extension of my physical exam and my assessment. Uh, And certainly part of that assessment, I can look for mechanical degenerative features, but my specialty in ultrasound with MSK is really looking at inflammatory features. Is there inflammation in the joint? And ultrasound is a really valuable tool in that assessment. And we can get into the nuts and bolts of it, but simply said, you can see tissues and we can look for blood flow to detect inflammation, right? And ultrasound allows us to do that with really good sensitivity and specificity to get a clear sense of what's going on. We'll certainly revisit that as we talk about GCA. We definitely want to hear more about yeah, for sure. how you use that tool to help your practice. Yeah, so, and with ultrasound comes, you know, if I see a lot of patients, if, if there's certain interventions that can help, injection therapies and things like that, that's included in my practice and, and I offer that for patients. And then the other part of my practice, and I think what we're going to talk a bit more about today and focus on is assessment for giant cell arteritis or GCA. And as I've been building my practice and building connections throughout the city, I think that's been a big part of my practice and it continues to grow in terms of being able to provide like rapid assessments for patients for suspected GCA. And yeah, it's a lot of variety, but it's fun. I, I enjoy it. It's sometimes a bit busier than I thought I'd planned for, but so far it's been going well. That's the perfect segue, Mo. So we're going to be talking about giant cell arteritis today or GCA. What's in a name? Why do we call it giant cell arteritis? Yeah, you know, so this is like, I guess, an overlap of two things. One is the pathophysiology and what we see on biopsies. Like when biopsies were done for temporal arteritis or GCA, sorry, let me step back a sec. When people present with GCA, about a third of patients can actually have enlargement of their temporal arteries. And it's like a visible thing. It's a palpable thing. You can see these arteries sticking out of someone's head. Not everyone gets that, but of people who do, it's quite clear. Back in 1932, I believe, 1930, 1932, in Mayo Clinic, they actually thought, let's biopsy these arteries and see what we find. And these temporal arteries actually demonstrate giant cells. It's one of the pathognomonic features. And so, you know, this temporal 
artery inflammation. It was called temporal arteritis. And you find the presence of giant cells. So giant cell arteritis was the name that kind of amalgamated out of that. So yeah, that's my understanding of where it came from. I'm sure there's probably some different iterations out there, but that's how I understand it. Let me just clarify, those listeners who really know nothing about giants, the cells are actually large. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, that's right. And how is GCA typically diagnosed? Tell us maybe where we're going, because I know that's changing, and how things have been since the 1930s. Yeah. So, you know, rheumatology as a field has really been expanding in different spits and spurts, but it's really been changing. And we've been changing in terms of our understanding of diseases or diagnostics, whether it's blood tests, whether it's tissue biopsies, whatever it is, or imaging findings. And then, and really our treatments and the whole armamentarium of different treatments that are available and that are coming down the pipeline. So the whole field is constantly changing. This is all of medicine, right? Medicine keeps evolving, right? And so in giant cell, the gold standard for diagnosing the disease really has been based on temporal artery biopsies. And so between 1930 and now, even in North America, like the gold standard is still doing temporal artery biopsies. We're getting close to 100 years where that really hasn't changed, right? So the American College of Rheumatology, they created classification criteria back in 1990s that said, here's certain features we would look for to say, if you have enough of these features, we would feel comfortable in a study labeling you as having had giant cell arteritis so that we can collectively agree, like what's the minimum requirement? And even these criteria are undergoing revision. But these are not things that change every year. They change every few decades, right? So even this is still like an iterative process. They opened up this process for changing classification criteria of GCA to include new features. And what this brings us to is the role of imaging. You know, imaging really has a huge expanded role in diagnosing GCA. And for listeners, I used to think, and I think a lot of us in medicine and even for patients, like we think someone's going to go in, take a piece of my tissue out and put this under a microscope and a pathologist who's a highly trained physician as well is going to look at this and tell us what this disease is, right? But in that process, if you step back, you kind of go, what is tissue to us? This tissue gets translated into an image. That's what tissue is. It gets created into a slide. Somebody looks at that slide and they see a picture. And then from that picture, they're telling you, you know, we see enough of these features, it looks like this, or we found ways to classify diseases, right? And so in giant cell, that's what the temporal artery biopsy is. It's, but eventually, it's, it's tissue that gets translated into an image, and that image is helping inform a diagnosis. Well, imaging with ultrasound, with MRI, CT scans, PET scans, it's the same thing. It's an image, right? So it's not this totally revolutionary thing. Like, we're still looking at images, right? But it's just that the technology has become sophisticated enough that it allows us to see details in non-invasive imaging, like doing an ultrasound of these blood vessels around your head. You can now get a resolution of that imaging that's so refined that you can actually see patterns. And those patterns help us find ways of describing what we see so that, you know, we can come to an accurate diagnosis. So... I hope that it's a bit of a roundabout way of saying it, but I just in terms of like our audience, I hope that's not too oversimplified. Or no, I, I think I think it nicely summed up. You mentioned a little bit about the temporal artery, so it's almost always a requirement that um, uh, a, a temporal artery biopsy is is required once suspected GCA is is maybe the clinical diagnosis. Yeah, you know, there's certain clinical features to GCA. The classic features we think about: people can have headaches, which 
when you think of headaches, like there's a thousand reasons for headaches, right? But headaches, scalp tenderness, right? Again, lots of different reasons for scalp tenderness. And people can get discomfort in the jaw, like not at the jaw joint, but along the mandible, in the chewing muscles, in the tongue. And we call this jaw claudication. It gets worse when people chew or talk. That's more specific in GCA. Not many things can cause that, right? But not everyone has these symptoms. And there's other features like polymyalgia rheumatica or PMR, that can be its own disease. This is, as I get more into this, like this is what makes rheumatology interesting or makes you go, oh my God, <laughs> this is complicated. <laughs> but, but polymyalgia or PMR, essentially people can have stiffness in their neck, shoulders, hips. It doesn't have to be symmetrical, but it can come on. And this can also overlap with GCA. So sometimes people have very classic symptoms. They show up and they've been feeling unwell, tired. They have new headaches. They're constant. They take things like Advil or Tylenol, and it doesn't make the headache go away. And they tell you that I'm losing weight because I, I'm trying to chew and eat food, but it hurts my jaw. I'm not eating as much. And, you know, my neck is stiff. My hips are stiff. I can't turn in bed. I can't get out of bed. Whereas two months ago, I was like totally fine. And so when you hear a story like that, it makes you go, oh yeah, like maybe this is GCA. And in medical school, we're all taught about giant cell arteritis. And the reason for this, GCA is a form of vasculitis. It's a form of blood vessel inflammation, and it's the most common form of vasculitis. So there's many types of vasculitis, and GCA is the most common type of vasculitis. So, you know, there's lots of statistics. You could look up numbers like, this occurs in 35 people per 100,000. And even now, I'm like, what does that mean? But if you actually translate that, it basically means in people over the age of 50, about one in 200 people get GCA. So that, that to me is like a realistic number because you can imagine what 200 people is. So it's relatively not uncommon from that perspective. Or PMR, like one in 40 people over the age of 50 get it. You can conceptualize what that means, right? So I was going to narrow in actually a little bit on the patient journey now because you mentioned the classic symptoms. How does that, walk us through a little bit of the patient journey. So how long typically do these uh, symptoms persist before a patient seeks help, a referral from their primary care provider to a, a specialist like yourself? And how bad usually, how much disease involvement does one need to have before really going up that referral pathway to see someone like yourself? Yeah, it's highly variable. It's highly variable. And this is what kind of makes a lot of our conditions challenging. So I can give you some stats, like the average time to diagnosing GCA is seven months. Right. And that sounds like a really long time. But in some cases, there's no way you could wait that long. And what I mean by this is two thirds of cases of GCA can occur slowly. They can evolve slowly over several months. And people might first just have some very mild stiffness in their neck or their shoulders. They have some mild PMR symptoms. They get a mild headache. Then, you know, weeks or months go by. And then mm. now they're noticing maybe some blurry vision they never had. And sorry, one thing I forgot to say, but it's implicit the big red alarm flag in GCAs. People can go blind and have strokes. That's what raises alarm bells about it. But the key point I wanted to say is sometimes these things happen slow and then somebody eventually checks some blood work and they're like, oh, you have lots of inflammation. And whether it's a family physician, whether it's another physician, they start connecting the pieces and they're like, oh, maybe your headaches and your neck pain and your blurry vision, maybe this is all one thing. And they're trying to make sense of it. And they go, oh, maybe this is GCA. But a third of cases can actually occur rapidly over weeks to months. And so I have had... Patients who unfortunately had headaches come on within a week, jaw pain, and then they wake up blind, like they can't see out of one eye. I've had some patients who've had lost vision in both eyes. I have one gentleman who basically woke up blind one morning, and he just had headaches. He had new onset headaches, 
was never prone to headaches, but didn't think much of it. And I don't think he did anything wrong. Like he just thought maybe these will go away. And then one morning woke up blind. And that's the biggest fear in GCA. Visual loss can occur in up to 15% of patients. So I think to your question, Aaron, it's highly variable. Some physicians very astutely see a pattern going on. Maybe this is GCA, I'll refer you. But once any of these patients have constellation of symptoms, headaches, raised inflammatory markers, they usually rapidly get referred to rheumatology or there's concern that it's GCA. If there's any visual involvement, like they've lost vision, their vision just went or it went and came back, or amaurosis fugax or fleeting vision, or they had double vision or they have new onset blurry vision that's not going away. These patients rapidly get referred to rheumatology. Sometimes they get admitted to hospital, they give an IV steroids. So to answer the question, it can be a slow grumbly thing or it can be fast, like within 24 hours, things get moving quickly. Just one quick follow-up. You mentioned disease awareness amongst primary care practitioners. Patient presents with these somewhat non-specific, I could say, but as you mentioned, a change in vision is, is certainly concerning. Um, what are the barriers to the patient journey in terms of accessing care? One thing I can think of is just a lack of awareness of the condition itself amongst the primary care community. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you start with from a patient, like some patients, when they recognize something's definitely skewed from their norm, they seek medical attention right away. They're like, I'm not prone to headaches. And just as a point, like any new onset persistent headache in someone over 50 should be investigated, right? Especially if you're not prone to migraines or you don't get like tension headaches or things like that. So some people, they've never had headaches. All of a sudden they start having constant daily headaches. Some people are pretty quick to seek medical attention. They'll go see their doctor or if they're really worried about it because it's severe, they go to the eMERGE, right? And in medical school, like GCA is one of these conditions that's drilled into us, like high inflammatory marker, headache, think GCA, right? Like if you just remember that. Now there could be lots of things causing that, but at least don't forget about GCA. From a patient perspective, someone being able to say, something's wrong, I need help. That's the first part. When people present with very nonspecific symptoms, I have cases where people don't present with the classic symptoms. They present with fever, unintended weight loss, night sweats, and it doesn't localize to anything. They don't even have polymyalgia symptoms. So that's highly undifferentiated. So people see that and they're like, is this some sort of infection? Is this some sort of cancer? And what happens invariably with these cases is whether they get admitted in hospital or they have a group of physicians working this up in an outpatient community setting, they get sent for CT scans and they get sent for blood work. And at some point they might see that there's really high inflammatory markers. But again, high inflammatory markers don't narrow anything down for us. They just tell us there's inflammation, there's a fire somewhere what's driving it. We don't really know. So I have seen patients who have seen multiple specialists and then eventually somebody goes, hmm, could this be GCA? And what we label this in medicine is like inflammation of unknown origin or fever of unknown origin. If people are actually having febrile episodes, that can sometimes be how GCA presents. And those patients typically actually take longer. These are the patients that can take nine months, a year, because they just kind of you know, bouncing from one specialist, they'll see an infectious disease doctor and they do workup for infection. Well, I don't see an infection. They might see a hematologist or a blood doctor and they're like, maybe this is some sort of lymphoma or leukemia and they do some workup and they're like, no, we don't see anything there. And so everyone takes a crack at it. And sometimes somebody kind of goes, we've thought of cancer, we've thought of infection, maybe this is something rheumatic or autoimmune. And GCA, unlike conditions like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, doesn't have any specific blood markers. 
It's being investigated. There's lots of different studies that are ongoing to look at this, but we don't have a biomarker specific for GCA that's commercially available. So that's one of the challenges in the diagnosis as well. Mo, you did a really good job of explaining both the classic textbook GCA, you know, age over 50, headache, high inflammatory markers, and then you also touched on that it's not always so simple and it's kind of a mystery until the rheumatologist gets involved and maybe figures things out. Could you tell us a bit about your experience in the real world seeing patients with giant cell arteritis? Yeah, for sure. I've had the privilege with the service we've created with doing a lot of the ultrasound assessments. I get to see a lot of patients from my colleagues. There's how cases are described in textbooks and then there's all the nuances and varied ways that they present that isn't really captured. And maybe not one clinician alone will have a chance to see that whole spectrum. But I can say that over the last two years, I've seen over 200 cases of GCA and there's a lot of like variety in that. Some of them are my own patients, some are patients from other colleagues, as I said. So this is described in some literature as well, but I think presentation of a chronic dry cough, and again, such a non-specific symptom, right? Like, is it a lung infection? Is it something going on in the pleura, in the lining of the lung? Or is there some sort of cancer that, that leads people to down those thoughts? And what PET scans have shown us is that sometimes the pharyngeal artery or the arteries in the lung, like the bronchial tree, they actually become inflamed and that irritates the lung and sometimes the lining of the lung and that triggers a cough, right? Just a persistent dry cough. I can say I probably have over a dozen patients now that I've seen, like you treat their GCA and their cough goes away. And some of the patients, they've noticed it. They're like, was that cough related? You know, and I don't think most general physicians would know that. I think that's more within rheumatology and within vasculitis. That's an atypical manifestation. I've definitely seen that. Facial swelling is a really uncommon one. I've had three people who actually, their presenting symptom to their physicians was they felt their head was swollen. And there is literature that describes this. People have written case reports on this. I've now seen a few, and it's an interesting way to present. And the theory is the blood vessels, the arteries going to the head, um, because they're inflamed, it actually presses on the veins and it reduces some of the drainage of the blood flow out of the head. And I've seen, I have one patient, I should, she's actually got good photos like before and after. She took photos because she's like, my head is swollen. And you can actually see there's a bit of swelling. Yeah, so it's interesting. Again, very atypical. Things that I think, again, rheumatologists are aware of, but people who actually present with limb claudication, when there's involvement in the large arteries, whether it be to the legs, the arms, and you don't get the same blood flow, just like the symptoms of jaw claudication or scalp tenderness, these are because these areas aren't getting enough blood flow. I had one patient who initially sought treatment or just initially started talking to her doctor because she was like, you know, when I go outside, I rake my leaves every year. And this year, my right arm just tires out so easily. And that was how she presented. And even with her, by the time this became like persistent enough and then they did some blood work and then eventually there's a CT scan and eventually it saw one rheumatologist and they referred to me and that took nine months. Right? So unfortunately, even for that patient, it had taken nine months. So limb claudication can be one. I, I asked patients about this, like one of the cases I saw was this woman who she would go on daily walks and the way she presented was she was having fevers and felt fatigued. But in that initial symptom, she was saying, my legs get tired. My legs get really tired. I walk up this hill. I've been walking up this hill for years and I could always walk up this hill. And I'm like, why well, are you getting short of breath? She's like, no, not short of breath. I'm not working harder to breathe. 
but my legs just feel really tired. And eventually with her, we found out that she had involvement, you know, in her iliac arteries and there was significant narrowing. So she had large vessel vasculitis. So some of these people with the large vessels that get involved, it can be harder uh, to pick up. A really recent one I've seen, and I had not seen this yet. I found some literature, like people have described this, but this gentleman had classic GCA symptoms. He had headaches, scalp tenderness, but he also kept complaining of abdominal pain. And he said whenever he would eat, he would get some abdominal pain. And he ended up actually having both his ultrasound scan and his biopsy. We did both because we're still recruiting patients. And I, I invited him to, if he'd be willing to do go through a biopsy, he did. They were both positive. So we know he clearly has GCA. But he kept saying, every time I eat food, I get some abdominal pain. He's like, I'm not prone to this. I don't develop bloating or gas or diarrhea. And he's not having a change in symptoms. But he's like, it really cramps and hurts. So when we did his CT scan, he actually had mesenteric involvement. So his arteries that feed his intestines actually had vasculitis. Um, again, very uncommon in GCA, but can happen. I recently read one. I, don't, I haven't seen this myself, but I read a case report of a woman who was having pelvic pain and again had biopsy-proven GCA, and they actually did a hysterectomy, and they found that the arteries feeding her uterus had uh, giant cells, and they had, she had giant cells. She had vasculitis in those arteries. So I think what gets presented to us in medical school is a very simple, straightforward disease, like headaches, high inflammatory murmur. Because I remember as a medicine, I was like, GCA is so easy, like slam dunk, <laughs> easy diagnosis. And as I went through my training, and I remember when I was applying for rheumatology and I was working with other staff that were training me and when I was a resident, a lot of rheumatologists go, oh, GCA is like such a hard disease because sometimes it's very easy and sometimes it's a convenient diagnosis. You're like, you have eye inflammatory markers and you have a headache. I think this is GCA. And the reality becomes that, yeah, most of the time it probably is in the right age group and context, but sometimes it isn't. And when it isn't, then it gets a lot more challenging. Well, what is it and what's going on? And I think the things I've seen that have ultrasound been helpful, but when I see someone and the ultrasound's negative, and the biopsy is negative, and I'm like, ultrasound in patients with GCA who haven't been on high doses of prednisone for more than two weeks, even ideally within a week, the sensitivity is really high. It's anywhere from 80 to 90%. So it's really good at telling you if there is something going on, is it really there? And when you have a test in medicine that's very sensitive, you know, so it's saying, here's a test that's really good at picking up some sort of signal. And when that test is negative, we kind of go is it really that disease? Because if it's so good at picking it up and that's negative, maybe this is something else. One thing I would put out there, and I've been humbled by this, patients who have like other things that cause headaches, so like a subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? Bleed in their brain or some sort of intracranial mass or masses behind the eyes or sinus infections. These can sometimes mimic GCA. And I think that often gets missed. We get focused on GCA. And in medicine, we talk about like anchoring bias. We get kind of a diagnosis comes up and we all anchor on it and it creates its own inertia. It closes your thinking, right? So that's a really good point you make. Certainly some of these cases could be missed through that anchoring bias that we all experience as practitioners. You're like, I know exactly that's the clear cut case. Check the check boxes and, and you're there. Let's maybe move on to treatment. Yeah. So Mo, you've done a really nice job of taking us through you know, the classic case and then sharing some stories about some stranger cases of GCA. But to make it a little bit more clear cut for our listeners, say you suspect someone with GCA, what kind of lab investigations do you want to order? And then what kind of imaging? You alluded to ultrasound, maybe pets available, biopsy. Take us through your approach. Sure. Thanks, Ashley. Yeah. I think from a primary care perspective, whether you're walk-in physician, family doctor, 
at the eMERGE or whether you're a general internist at the hospital. Like, I think if you see a case where somebody's presenting with enough features where you're like, hmm, could this be GCA? The initial assessment, and one thing I would just say here, like we're really trained in med school, and I'll just reiterate this point. If you really suspect, if you have a moderate to high suspicion that somebody does have GCA, it's drilled into us, give them prednisone, treat them up front. And GCA is one of these conditions we treat up front and then we work backwards to confirm the diagnosis. And the reason we say that is the risk of stroke and the risk of vision loss. And so that's my like one disclaimer. If you really think someone has GCA, yes, please start them on treatment, 40 to 60 milligrams of prednisone. If they don't have visual symptoms, 40 milligrams is typically fine. If they have visual symptoms, send them to eMERGE if you're really worried. But the key thing is a lot of basic blood work goes a long way. So cell counts, do they have high white count? Do they have high platelets? That can sometimes be a clue for GCA because these are markers that go up in inflammation. Basic kidney function, just so we know if they have to go for a CT scan, is their kidney function adequate? We want to see their inflammatory markers. So typically we order a CRP or C-reactive protein. And again, like a CRP is not perfect. The sensitivity of a CRP in GCA is around 85%. So it's good most of the time. But if a CRP is negative, you can't exclude GCA. So that's where clinical suspicion, if clinically you suspect it's still GCA, if you actually look at our lab requisition forms in BC, if you put the diagnosis, if you actually put GCA and you write a CRP and another inflammatory marker called an ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, usually we're not allowed to order both at the same time. But if you put GCA in the diagnosis, the labs do allow you to run both. And the reason is because the sensitivity of CRP is 85%. So said another way, about 5 to 10% of the time, CRP could be normal, and ESR 5 to 10% of the time can be normal. And sometimes they're discordant. One is really high and one is normal, and I've definitely seen that. So if you really suspect it, send off both in the beginning if you're unsure. And if that's all you did and you forgot about everything else, that's fine. Okay, that's a good place to start. But of course, like liver enzymes, kidney function, and Often, because we think about malignancies, and um, we, th- we send off something like a serum protein electrophoresis, or SPEP, the other benefit in my mind, and this is a little bit more nuanced, but sometimes the ESR is normal, the CRP is normal, and the SPEP, what it shows is if there's a rise in alpha-2 globulins, and even the, the pathologist will make this comment, they're like, oh, severe inflammatory features, you know, and that kind of makes, for rheumatologists, will kind of go, hmm, like maybe that's a big clue. So just something to think about. But if that's all you did, that's a great place to start in terms of blood work. If you suspect GCA, do that. What we've set up and what we're still trying to set up in Vancouver, COVID kind of ruined a lot of plans. <laughs> but this idea, we the whole point of doing ultrasound was to create a fast-track clinic where people could be seen quickly and assessed within 72 hours by a rheumatologist, get an ultrasound scan as part of their evaluation. Right now, I'm a solo fast-track person. <laughs> so my colleagues, Dr. Annis, Dr. Degan, we wanted to we want to create this service as a quaternary service in the province. But currently, I see a lot of these referrals, and we do a rapid ultrasound assessment to clarify, is there inflammation in these blood vessels or not? Depending on the results of that ultrasound scan, we decide whether to do a biopsy or not. But if you're in a setting where ultrasound is not readily available, certainly people will get sent for a temporal artery biopsy that's sometimes done through general surgery or plastic surgeons, or even ophthalmologists do some of them to get a temporal artery biopsy. And that's a good starting point. If you organize those things and you get some blood work done, that's a great place to start to get the ball rolling. Awesome. I just want to clarify one thing because I've heard this happening in practice. Can anyone, any radiologist that accepts a requisition, look for GCA on the ultrasound? 
Or do you need to be specially trained in this? Yeah, I'd say that this is certainly a subspecialized area of training. So in Vancouver, like St. Paul's Hospital, their radiology department will do temporal artery scans. And they've been doing them. They have experience with them. There's a couple of radiologists like Dr. Murphy who they've helped build this as a service there. I've had a chance to go to their rounds and present with them. And there's certain things in their scan that that they don't do that I do. Just And I think part of it is just resources like tech time. And the, over the years from when ultrasound and GCA was first presented over 20 years ago to now, the protocols have changed. We keep updating it. So it's offered there. On the island in Victoria, there's a radiologist and rheumatologist who are trying to incorporate that and to have radiology do the scans and to have that partnership. But I'd say these are still pretty niche offerings. Like this is not something that you can take a requisition to any outpatient ultrasound clinic and be like, please scan the temporal arteries because technically doing the scan is one thing. And is that being done correctly? But the other part is interpreting the scan. And has that radiologist actually seen enough cases to be confident in what they're seeing and to give a clear interpretation. And there's a bit of nuance around that. And that's where the training yeah. is really important. I think it's really interesting how you have that vision for a quaternary service in the province for fast track, because certainly you don't want patients waiting in the queue or having an unsure assessment to move forward. So I think that's quite a neat setup that you're, you're looking at. Yeah, my only point is like all good ideas, we steal them, right? So the idea of a fast track clinic, there's different specialties have come up with this in Europe, this idea of using GCA fast track clinics has been established. I trained with Dr. Andreas Diamantopoulos. He's like definitely one of the world experts in this in Norway. I trained with him. Dr. Dasgupta in the United Kingdom, they have a fast-track clinic as well. And, and these are cropping up, and he's one of the world experts. And Dr. Wolfgang Schmidt, again, he's the guy who actually wrote about this initially back in 1998. You know, it was a New England Journal paper. So I've trained with these mentors, and I've learned a lot from them. And I've also seen how they run their fast-track clinics. And and there's papers that show it reduces healthcare utilization, people have better outcomes, there's less vision loss. So I think it, there's a lot of reasons to go behind to support this kind of initiative. And I've had lots of support from within our department as well. Mo, thank you so much for joining us today. Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners, can you just tell us a few um, key take-home points, summarizing what to look for in GCA, when to expect it, and then what investigations you order? Yeah, for sure. So I think... Anyone over the age of 50 who's having new onset persistent headaches, that needs investigation. Like, just period, full stop. Aside from that, basic blood work, basic CBC, complete cell counts, inflammatory markers, CRP, ESR. If you do that, I think that goes a long way because that will raise the flag. It's drilled into us. Headaches, high CRP, think GCA. That will definitely help move the ball forward. I think the other key population is if you see someone who's having inflammation or fever of unknown origin and it's persistent, again, think GCA, could this be large vessel variant? I think that's a really good thought to have. Whenever a case of GCA is suspected, those patients will be done well to be referred to rheumatology. And these are urgent referrals. And I think that for primary care providers, they should flag urgent. We will see these patients quickly. We realize time is of the essence. and. As taught to us in med school, if you suspect GCA, start prednisone up front to get things going so that patients don't have complications. I think that's the biggest message I would pass on. Well, this was fun. Thanks so much for being here. I can't wait, I don't know about you, Ashley, for part two of our conversation, which will be coming very shortly. Thanks for joining in studio, Ashley, today. Are you going to be able to make it for part two? 
Thanks for having me. I will definitely be here for part two. Well, thanks again for listening to the Skin and Joints podcast. We'll see you next time. Wait, Aaron, you forgot to mention, this is part one of our conversation with Dr. Barty. Tune in next week for part two. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. As a reminder, we kind of have to say this. The opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thanks to Teva and Lily for supporting today's episode with an independent medical education. Grant. Let's chat soon.